The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, John K. Wilson. In tonight's news... Alders sign off on more money for the Madison public market. An update to Wisconsin's wolf plan numbers, or lumbers, rather, forward. We unveil our latest feature highlighting the working lives of people in Madison and... In the second half, an exit interview with Romeo and the anniversary of a student protest against Napalm. This is Vicki Iden and John K. Wilson with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Yesterday, the GOP-controlled state Senate passed a grab bag of measures covering everything from increasing the prison terms for abortion providers to drug testing people collecting unemployment compensation. And, as we reported yesterday, advancing a bill barring gender-affirming care for minors and firing several of the governor's appointees. One of the leading items was an attempt to address the crisis in child care access. Their actions included substantially increasing the allowable number of kids per teacher and lowering the age of teachers to 16 years old. Other actions included regulations of women's reproductive health. This included exempting the treatment of ectopic pregnancies as an abortion, but also increasing the prison term for abortion providers from the current six years to 15 years. The day concluded with two measures that have been debated this year and in previous years. Bans on any medical care related to transgender youth, a ban on participation of transgender youth in competitive sports, and finally, a $2 billion income tax cut. The state legislature has seen weeks of heated debate about transgender youth athletes. One bill is looking to designate school sports teams based on sex. Representative Vardra Dittrich of Oconomowoc uh, is the main proponent of this change. But when asked just how many transgender kids actually participate in sports statewide, she has offered many different answers. Initially, she said that there were transgender youth on, quote, about six different teams, unquote. Later, she clarified the statement that she heard complaints about it from six individuals. Uh, Still later, she noted that she received the complaints in 2021, the first time she introduced the bills, but did not know of any issues since then. In a review of Dittrich's claim of six participants in high school sports, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel conducted a PolitiFact investigation. They found only a single instance where a transgender student asked to participate in a school sport, but there is no record that she actually participated. The WIAA, the agency that oversees school athletics, knew of no instance of participation. In conclusion, PolitiFact ruled that Representative Dittrich's claim of transgender participation in sports was mostly false. Also yesterday, the state assembly approved providing $546 million to renovate and improve the stadium for the Milwaukee Brewers, now called AmFam Field. As a condition of the state and local funds, the Brewers agreed to extend their contract from 2030 to 2050. The bill requires $411 million in state funds and $135 million from Milwaukee City and County, payable over 27 years. 
the Brewers will contribute $100 million to the fund. Most of the funds will be used to winterize the stadium so it can host events throughout the year. Governor Tony Evers initially proposed a slightly higher amount of state aid, but with no aid from Milwaukee County and City as they are in financial distress. The bill was approved by a vote of 69 to 27, with an even division of yay and nay votes between Democrats and Republicans. More details have emerged in the resignation of the state Senate's top clerk amid a credible allegation of assault. The Cap Times has more information on the nature of that situation after the newspaper requested the report on the investigation into the incident under Wisconsin's open records law. That investigation found sufficient evidence to support one allegation of sexual assault in a hotel room at an out-of-state conference. The investigation was not able to support two other allegations of sexual misconduct, reports the Capital Times. After months of lockdown, a second prison inmate in Wisconsin has died by suicide. During a lockdown, which usually lasts no more than a week, prisoners are confined to their cells for 24 hours a day, with no outside activities, no family visits or phone calls, and very limited allowance for personal hygiene. The New York Times, which has led the investigations of this practice, now reports that a third prison, Chippewa County's Stanley Correctional Institution, is on lockdown. In last week's state capitol protest against lockdowns, Emily Curtis, whose son is incarcerated at Stanley, told the State Journal that the biggest effect of the lockdown is less contact with family. The man arrested for the brutal assault of a young woman in downtown Madison this summer has pleaded not guilty to multiple felony charges. That assault, just blocks from the WORT studios, left the woman, who has not been identified except as a UW student, hospitalized in critical condition. The man accused is being held after failing to produce bail, which was set at $1 million. After his arrest, he told detectives that, as the woman was walking home, quote, she came upon a monster, unquote. For listeners who really want to get into the ins and outs of voting, the Wisconsin Elections Commission is holding a public demonstration of an election voting machine. The commission is currently testing the Heart InterCivic Verity Voting System 2.7 and may consider it for certification. The demonstration is at 4 p.m. tomorrow, located on the second floor of 201 West Washington Street in Madison. Note, you'll be able to see but not touch the machine. That will be left to the commissioners. The Dane County Regional Airport once again has the distinction of dispensing the highest cost air tickets in the nation, with a domestic ticket averaging out at $537, according to a new study from LendingTree that analyzed federal transportation data. Dane County was joined by just one other airport in the nation with an average ticket price above $500. That's Ted Stevens Anchorage International in Alaska. According to the data, average ticket prices at the Dane County Airport jumped by more than 16 percent from 2022 to 2023. A spokesperson for the airport tells the Cap Times that the airport has no direct influence on ticket prices and can only control the fees it charges airlines. In a recent episode of the Dane County podcast, Dane County Regional Airport Director Kim Jones said that the airport is down to 1.9 million travelers per year from a pre-pandemic average of 2.5 million travelers a year. 
Dane County Executive Joe Parisi, the interviewer on that episode, characterized it as one of the finest and nicest airports in the nation. And now, on to today's top stories. The Common Council voted last night to borrow an additional $1.6 million in spite of the city's growing financial troubles. That money will be used to help cover a funding gap that's been plaguing the Madison public market. WORT News producer Faye Parks has that story. In spite of Madison's looming budgetary shortfall, the Common Council has approved more funding for the construction of the Madison public market. After urging from advocates of the project, Alders narrowly voted to approve borrowing an extra $1.6 million to cover an existing funding gap. That's $700,000 short of a recommendation from the city's finance committee, which earlier this month recommended that the council borrow $2.3 million for the project. That money would have gone toward new garage doors and windows in the market's southern hall. Yesterday's vote required at least 15 alders in favor, and that's exactly how many voted to approve the funding. The three alders voting against the proposal are alders J.L. Curry and Derek Field, both of East Madison, and Isidore Knox of South Madison. The Madison Public Market has been in the works for nearly 20 years and is set to be located at the corner of 1st Street and East Johnson. But the extended timeline, along with recent inflation, has consistently bumped up the price tag. In 2015, the approved budget was $14 million. Now, estimated costs are over $23 million. Much of that funding comes from private donors, but according to Madison's finance director, David Schmidke, that private support can only go so far. In terms of evaluating all the funding sources, the foundation, which is responsible for this fundraising, felt that they probably have maximized what they could do relative to the construction project. But the approval process isn't over yet. The Dane County budget may also invest in the Madison public market. There's an element to the project for what's called furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And the county budget does have a million dollars that has been proposed and still would need to be adopted by the county to help with that portion of the cost of the project. Tomorrow, the county board is slated to take up a proposal to approve an extra million dollars from the current county budget to help offset the unanticipated increase in construction costs. That's in addition to the $1.5 million they've already approved. Because that would draw from the county's 2023 budget, the resolution also needs a three-quarters vote to pass. The move was recommended for approval earlier this month by the county's finance committee. The push for more funds for the public market comes as money troubles loom for most cities in Wisconsin, including Madison, which has more than doubled its debt levels over the past two decades, according to research from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The city's finance department projects that, by 2029, Madison's revenue won't even cover operating expenses. By 2029, the city could see a shortfall of up to $75 million. Jason Stein, research director at the nonprofit Wisconsin Policy Forum, tells WORT that Madison could struggle with structural deficits even sooner than officially projected, as federal pandemic aid, which has helped prop up some of the city's budget, begins to run out. Stein says residents are likely to bear the brunt of that looming deficit, facing increased fees to keep money flowing into city coffers. That comes as the Republican-led legislature has enacted restrictive limits on how cities can raise revenue, even as it's delivered less than $10 for every Madison resident in the latest round of revenue sharing. That's despite a record state surplus. 
The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Madison Public Market Foundation plans to bring in sales between $16 and $20 million every year, along with creating 365 new jobs and ushering in $200 million worth of potential neighborhood redevelopment. The foundation also points to its positive social impacts, uplifting women and people of color with local businesses. Isthmus newspaper reports that Caracas, Empanadas y Mas, Little Tibet, El Sabor de Puebla, and Perfect Imperfections have already been approved as some of the market's future vendors. With the Common Council's approval of the budget, the Madison Public Market can now move on to the construction phase. It's projected to open its doors in 2025. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Wisconsin's wolf population has been a contentious issue for the past 30 years. Now the state's Department of Natural Resources is set to consider a revised wolf management plan, the first update to the state's plan in 16 years, at a meeting next Wednesday. The Wisconsin News Connection's Roz Brown has more. The long-awaited Wisconsin Wolf Management Plan is up for adoption next week by the state's Department of Natural Resources, and the board will likely get an earful from both opponents and supporters during the public hearing. The updated draft management plan includes rules to govern any future recreational wolf-killing seasons. In late 2022, the DNR released a draft plan that wolf advocates were ready to accept. But since then, Kim Hollis, with the group Friends of the Wisconsin Wolves and Wildlife, says another revised plan has surfaced. We kind of got the rug pulled out from under us because at the last minute the plan was changed. It's not at all similar to the original draft plan. Two years ago, Wisconsin hunters killed 218 wolves in a week, far exceeding the state's limit of 119. That resulted in a lawsuit against the DNR by animal welfare groups. A judge ultimately required the agency to prepare an updated wolf management plan prior to another hunting season. When the original draft plan was released, Hollis says wolf advocates were encouraged that it included recommendations not only from hunters and trappers, but also tribes and wildlife advocates. But she worries the DNR will be more persuaded by those who want to hunt wolves than pro-wildlife stakeholders. The hunters and the trappers, even though they're a smaller group than the majority of the public, wanted more wolves. They make a lot of noise and they seek to be treated differently because I think they've become accustomed to that over all these years. Meanwhile, a bill has been introduced in the Wisconsin legislature to force the DNR to include a hard cap on the state's wolf population in the new management plan. The agency has declined to do so, saying a cap would limit flexibility in managing the wolf population. The DNR meets at 8.30 a.m. on October 25th in the State Natural Resources Building with online viewing also available. For Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Roz Brown. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Tonight, we are thrilled to unveil our newest feature, this time centering on the working people who make Madison thrive. But don't take our word for it. Here's feature contributor Riley Cutright with more. Just making sure that the baby stays alive sometimes. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well... I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone.
This week, I'm kicking off Madison's Backbone with part one of two, featuring my first guest, Jen. In our interview, Jen gives us all the details on what being a NICU nurse entails, from unconventional work hours to advice from people gauging interest in the nursing profession. Um, So I have a bachelor's degree with a focus in nursing, and I got that actually in Maryland, where I lived for those three years. So I I actually grew up in Maryland. I went to a pretty small private school in Maryland called Stevenson, and that's a four-year program there. Can you give me a little bit on how you got your first job as a nurse? So I got really, really lucky, and I actually, during my clinicals, worked with a wonderful nurse uh, named Celeste, and she was my very first ever clinical instructor. So the first time I ever went to a hospital as a nursing student, she was kind of my mentor and my guide around the hospital for that first time ever. And at the end of my four-year program, we do something called a practicum, which is kind of like a unpaid internship where you spend a lot of time at a specific location and kind of get to learn what being a nurse is going to be like. And Celeste was the manager of the very first NICU that I had my practicum in. And so when I graduated, I went to her and I said, hey, I've already been trained like for free for you. It would make sense for you to hire me. (laughs) And so she brought me in for an interview and that's how I got my first job. Okay. So Tell me about the NICU in general. What does NICU stand for? Uh, NICU stands for neonatal ICU. So a lot of our patients, it's right after birth when they come to us and they either just need a little bit of help. So full-term babies that are born, sometimes they have extra fluid in their lungs or maybe something's going on in utero. So when they're born, um, they need more support than just what mom and the nurses taking care of healthy mom and babies can give them. So they come to the NICU. It can also be patients that are born very premature. So we currently can save down to 22 weeks. So for all the pregnant ladies out there, that's halfway through your pregnancy. We can save babies down to 22 weeks gestation. And then sometimes we'll go out for babies that have been out in the community, but either the pediatric unit that they would be designated to go to can't handle them, or they are young enough and our pediatric ICU sends them to us. So like generally under a month or so old, they'll actually go to the NICU because we have more baby-specific specialized education and doctors and things like that. What does a typical shift look like for you? It can range. I would say a good day would be me with two to three patients and they are on their way out the door. So a really good day would be two babies that are just learning how to bottle feed or maybe growing a little bit. And so a good day looks like every three hours I go in and take vital signs and assess them and then feed them, change their diaper and kind of hang out with them when they're getting close to going home. But it can also be the other end of a spectrum would be like those 22-weekers. So those babies are sometimes in very critical condition and they need a lot of support. So it's looking more like going in and drawing labs, titrating IV drips or placing an IV, assessing them, talking to the doctor, talking to the pharmacy, talking with all of the care team as well as interacting with the family to make sure that they stay in the loop and just making sure that the baby stays alive sometimes. Everything in between as well, you know, we we see a lot of stuff in the NICU and um, it's, it's hard to kind of pin down what a normal shift would look like. It seems like your job is really diverse in that way and Of course, with patients who are in such a wide range of care, 
that makes you a really flexible worker. Can you tell me about your hours specifically, like the times of day that you work? I actually have a pretty specialized schedule right now. So currently I work every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I recently went on to this schedule just because it works better for my lifestyle. So my husband's a chef and he also works odd hours. And so it just works better for us. And currently with the schedule I have, we're actually able to have off every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday together. I know that those are some pretty unconventional hours. I know you gave me a little bit about how that impacts your life and it actually impacts your life for the better. Is there any other ways that those hours kind of impact your life? I would say anybody who works nights out there understands working odd hours can sometimes be challenging for your social life. I am pretty fortunate in the case that I have a lot of friends that work at like baristas or restaurants or things like that. So they also kind of have odd hours, not to mention most of my friends are nurses. (laughs) A lot of my friends, like partners, significant others, do have more like nine to five hours. Other benefits are I can take long during the week vacations where stuff is cheaper and there's not as many people there and that part is way more convenient. I don't have to call out of work to go to the doctor's office or anything like that. So yeah, that that part is also really beneficial. Do you think that you receive enough recognition from the community? It's a hard question because I am in a very specialized unit and so I personally feel like a lot of the families are really grateful for what we're doing just because we're interacting with them in this time when they're very vulnerable and generally when they have a good experience we're able to get really positive feedback. But overall I think that people don't understand a lot of the work that healthcare workers have done. and. I mean there's a reason that nurses left in droves during the pandemic. It was such a hard time for everyone, but healthcare took a really big brunt of that. And so there are a lot of nurses out there that aren't as like sheltered from it as we were. So we got really lucky being in the baby land um, because we did have to be so, so careful about the germs that were coming in and the people that we let in. And we were kind of sheltered from a lot of the devastation that happened during the pandemic. I know that people were grateful and I know that people, you know, we, we got a big outpouring from the community here, but in hospital care, in health care, by and large, I don't think that people maybe understand enough to be truly appreciative of all the work that we do. can't imagine how that would be. You have to be so cautious because in your line of work, that is someone's life. I feel so lucky to be doing what I'm doing, and I truly love my job so much and I also feel very fortunate that I don't know a single NICU nurse that isn't passionate about what they're doing. For all of the people who are maybe considering what they're majoring in, what kind of advice would you give them to get a start in being a nurse? I know that you have an extensive education, but what would that kind of look like? I think that first off, know that nursing is not for the faint of heart. Even school, it kicked my butt for all four years. Uh, You can pay me to go back and do it again. (laughs) Um, But know that you're going into it for the right reasons. Because, I mean, the schooling's tough, but like you said before, when you're out there and you literally have someone's life in your hands, you have to care about what you're doing. It's so important that you care and you're going into nursing not because you think nurses make good money or you like the off hours. Go into it with that mindset that 
you're trying to help someone, that you care about what you're doing because there are people out there that go into it for the wrong reasons. And I'm sure everybody's heard some of the true crimes with different things that happen in healthcare and things like that. And so I hope that anybody who's considering going into nursing is doing it because they care and because they want to help the community. And my advice to anybody out here, out there who's trying to get into nursing is get your foot in the door, you know, start out volunteering. Uh, I've heard stuff recently that like people view hospitals the way they view airports is like liminal spaces, but it's something that I go and do every time I work. And so it's not for me. And so knowing that you're going to be comfortable in that situation, I think is also part of it because some people just can't do hospitals. I love learning, um, but I love learning about my job specifically. And that fuels me to always want to know better so that I can do better for my patients. And I feel like that's a big part of going into nursing and, and being successful is wanting to have those experiences. Thank you for tuning in to Madison's Backbone to hear about the challenges and rewards of being a NICU nurse. You won't want to miss part two, where we discuss in more detail the most rewarding and most challenging aspects of caring for the youngest patients in our community. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us. This October brought an end to many American Players Theater shows on the Hill, including a fresh take on an old classic, Romeo and Juliet. That adaptation, which starred Joshua Castile as Romeo and Isabel Bouchou as Juliet, featured spoken English and American Sign Language. WORT reporter Gigi Royko Maurer saw these performances many times while working as a House staff member during the APT season. Earlier this week, she sat down with Joshua and interpreter Caden Marshall to talk about Joshua's personal experience of being deaf in theater, the beauty of RNJ, and how he got started in the industry. So first question, what inspired you to pursue a career in the arts? Um, my mother bought a shower curtain. Um, and I know this feels like it's going off on a tangent, but I promise it's not. Um, she bought a shower curtain. And the first time she bought the shower curtain, it was the one with the slit in the middle. So it could like be like theatrical curtains. And so I um, would poke my head out and I would like perform different characters to the mirror, which was directly across from the shower and so I kept doing that and my mom was like stop you're hogging up the bathroom so then she put me in something called community theater and so then after then it was like an addiction that I can't drop so that's where it is that's where it came from it's a very wonderful story it's a very interesting story next question could you tell me if you remember uh, your first experience performing in theater absolutely um, I auditioned I watched this cartoon called Charlotte's Web, and I auditioned with the Templeton song, which is like the rat. And so I went in and I auditioned it, and they're like, no, you're just so cute. We love your little deaf accent. Can you be Wilbur? And I was like, sure. So I played Wilbur for the second act. And um, it was honestly amazing. It was great. Uh, it was like a community theater, 50 seats, and we did it for a summer. And ever since then, I just really appreciated it. I really loved this, like, I love like the storytelling. I love the character work. It was really fun. Yeah. What was your first show? 
My first show, I was in Children's Theater of Madison, and I did a summer camp, and we put on James and the Giant Peach. We ate a peach. No. <laughs> I was one of the police officers that catches Spiker and Sponge, the evil aunts, and I had a little police dance number. Yeah. But it was amazing. It was so amazing. We wore pearls, and Pearl we did- police officers? Yeah. It was very fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I think I didn't actually sing an entire note for the whole musical. I just mouthed it. Work. Yeah. Work. I watermelon lemonade myself sometimes too when there's music. And that's okay. And that's okay. We have to do what we have to do. Right. Right. Leading on sort of to the experience at APT in the beginning, obviously there are cast members in Romeo and Juliet who do not know sign or did not know sign before the show. Do you feel like the process of learning sign for the show brought an extra emotional component and connection into the cast? Did you see the show? Okay, like what did you get from the outside if you don't mind me asking? For me, it felt like there are some plays that feel like it's everyone's personal performance being put into one show and it's everyone's singular work being put into one show. This felt like everyone was completely working together, like seeing the perfect team exercise be executed and everyone knew what to do and it was very fluid, which told me that you guys... We're not only performing for us, but you were definitely performing for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a showcase of you all showing your talents that you've developed for each other throughout this show. That is beautiful. But I don't want to put words into no, your I, mouth, so tell me, because I'm interviewing you. You are. You are. So I, I just wanted to ask you, because I don't really get to ask people what they think and what they saw. And I think you're hitting on some really interesting points, because I think that we, um, when we get comfortable, I think we get into a rut. Not, not rut, but we get into a routine. And we're just like, I know what I'm doing. This is my thing. And I think that coming into the space with people who don't know sign language, it allows this new culture to bring us together. You know, and you really have to trust each other. Like, I had to trust Colleen Manton, Jimmy DeVita, Gavin Lawrence. I had to trust them to give me insights into what Romeo was. I have to be open. And I, I do that. Like if you've watched my Hunchback videos, you can see me and my voice actor are very much connected. And that's something that I do is I go in the process and I go, you're voicing for me. So it's not just my choices. If you want to try something, I'm the, you're, you're helping me portray this character. So you are amplifying the choices that I'm making, but I can't in my own human instinct be like, only my choices. You know, like you're here with me. So if you have something you want to try, tell me. And so I create this space of collaboration. And on the first day of this process, I knew like we were in a huge company of people who are used to this process, who know what they're doing. And me coming in puts them out of their place. And I think that that's a scary place to be. And then so I remember early on, I was like, don't just use the interpreter's gesture. Use your phone to type. You will not offend us. We're going to laugh. It's going to be charades. And I think that kind of just broke the ice. And I think having so many new elements brings a cast together. And it doesn't have to be trauma bonding. It could be like culture bonding. It could be like, you know, developing a show with things that we don't know about and just exploring what does it mean when you have a Jeff Romeo. And just reminding people that it's just theater. Like, it doesn't have to be this personal. And so I think throughout the process, we've really grown to love each other and stand in for each other and 
they gave me ideas for the character. I gave them ways of performing Romeo that was different than what's classically done. So I think now there's this mutual admiration for each other's work. There's this like respect for the space that we've created for each other. And I think when we go out there, we know the story we've been building for a month and a half. And now we're excited to share that with audiences where it's like, we're doing a show. I'm playing this character. You know, I know it's just a different vibe. And I, I'm really excited that this happened. And I'm looking forward to seeing how APT culture changes because I do think there is a place for disability. I do think that there is characters that are disabled and it feels awkward. But when you put them in the role, the show shines. You know, it's like Tennessee Williams' Glass Menagerie. They put a woman in a wheelchair in that role. And people were so uncomfortable because it was like, why is the mom being so mean and patronizing? That's the play. That's what it is. You know? So I think it's great. The whole thing's going to be amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And kind of moving on, have you noticed differences between deaf audience members and hearing audience members with post-show discussions, Q&As, reactions to the show? Have you noticed any significant differences in that? Yeah, I think I think for hearing audiences, there's a little bit of like a, whoa, oh, this made sense. And for deaf audiences, there's been a lot of like, Shakespeare's really that dirty? It's like, yeah, there's a lot of dirty jokes. Like, like oh, wow, didn't know. And also representation. They're just so excited that there's this deaf lead character who's desired and seen as someone who's sexual. And that's something that a lot of disabled people don't necessarily get to see in themselves is um, being a desired person sexually, emotionally. It's most of the time the funny side character or the best friend or the pity party. And so that has been an interesting thing. There's been a lot of discussion about the translation work of language play. I'm very proud of that, of the work that we've created and to have the speech intense coach how they're able to tell us where the language is playing has, has literally changed some of my translations to be more word playing concept play even more than it was the first time and so having that resource really helped me to develop work in such a way that's more impressive than most theater we see in the country with sign language because we don't have that support in the room We're most of the time making our own productions or we are doing a smaller theater that doesn't have the ability to provide that so having this platform here at apt really has allowed the deaf audiences to see better quality work i think and i think here in audiences we're just very fascinated by this that the fact that deaf people have a perspective and experience that's different you know i think people look at deafness and think there's a lacking of an experience there's a lacking of something rather than there's a whole other you know like i don't sit here going i can't hear i sit here going that person's face is really weird they're really frustrated today so i'm looking at way different things than people are and feeling differently about things than people are um and that's okay i think that's just something that the show brought to light and a lot of people have come up and been like I want to see more. I, I'm curious. I did not know that this was what deaf culture is. And it's not. It's a part of it. But, you know, I'm excited to see what other shows they do and what elements of the culture and language we can bring to the stage. For sure. And watching Romeo and Juliet, it seems like almost the way that Italian is used in opera and people go to the opera and maybe they don't necessarily understand Italian, but the way that the language is used portrays such a deeper level of emotion and adds a different aspect. And I'm wondering if you ever think that ASL could be used in productions, even by hearing people, just because this show needs that deeper level of emotion. We need to put our voices and our bodies into portraying this. Do you ever think that that could be sort of a next step with popularizing ASL in theater? 
Um, I think you're bringing up something that I think is really uh, exciting to me as uh, an artist, um, but also terrifying to a deaf community. Um, I think you're right. I think ASL has a language and a structure that allows us to better curate our expression because there's parameters in the language that allow us to distinguish space, concept through space and time. And my theater teacher always told the actors in my class, like, if you go take ASL classes, I will give you bonus points because it's literally telling you how to communicate things with your body, you know? And so I'm like, this is great. I love this idea. On the flip side, the deaf community is like, we don't get opportunities. And so a lot of deaf people are like, we are the masters of this craft. And I think it's easy for us to feel like, oh, and you already want to take that away from us. You know, you already want to give it to somebody else and then we'll just go back to being in the dark again. And... I think the other part of that is you have to get into the mainstream. It's like it loses a little bit of its sparkle when it does that, but it becomes more accepted. It's like Drag Race. When it first started, it was so edgy and so sparkly. And then now it's like more common, more widely accepted and mainstream. And I I think that's great. I think it's amazing. There does come this sense of like appropriation and a little sense of uh, for spectacle and, you know, attention and not truly giving access to the show, truly bringing an experience to the show. So I think there is a way to do that. And I think as long as we keep including deaf performers in the space, I think the work will shine. I think when we start to take it away and it goes into like people who don't really know the language and hearing people use it, I think it, it's going to continue to gain a different meaning and a different look. But I think the original intent, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get lost. And um, I worry about that. But I do encourage people to learn sign. I do encourage people to consider bringing in people into the space. I've been wanting to ask that question this entire oh interview. <laughs> that was my, I was like, I really want to hear his answer for this one. Well, Isabel. Isabel Bashu. Can you tell me about your process with the chemistry and the acting and just go off? Tell me. Well, I was not expecting to have this much chemistry with her. And I think our chemistry is good. I, first of all, doing the show lost my mind the first time we did it because it's so intense and it's so deep. And I asked Isabel, have you done this show before? She said, no, I've done like monologues. And I was like, oof. So I got, I went to the sto- to the crystal and lot store and I got her the performing stone. And I said, hey, this is for you because um, this is my way of telling you that like, you're still you. Even at the end of this process, so you're going to lose your mind. Um, we're going to go into really dark places. Um, but we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to who we are. And during this process with her, she definitely had to trust and open up and build a relationship with me. And there's a lot of intimacy. And it's scary when you're working and doing intimacy with someone you don't know. And so we had a lot of conversations about that in terms of like, are you feeling safe? Like, I don't want to hurt you. But also like, like, how do we tell the story of these two lovers? And she guru and her trust really was there and I think we trusted each other so much that it started to grow and play and we started to nurture each other's needs and during tech there there was a moment where we were so tired and so like just emotionally a wreck and we just cried together and you know we ate food together and like just spent time together just building that and I think she allowed me into her heart in a way that a lot of people have a hard time doing and it's scary and you know and she really just showed up and played and watching her play Juliet was so fun because she plays it with such I call it so when we auditioned Juliet I gave each Juliet that I was auditioning a name there was Cumberland Statue Juliet there was a uh, potted plant Juliet there was Fern Juliet 
There was chess playing at Julianne. She was chess playing at Julianne. When we did the audition, we did the balcony scene. So she did the first part of the balcony scene. And then I came out and I didn't speak. And we didn't warn the Juliets about that. So the Juliets were like, oh, 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 okay. And so they're just like trying to figure out how to act with this person. And she stayed still. And she looked at me. And I just watched her like in the Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've seen that where the chessboard pops up and all the chess pieces are moving. She's trying to figure out how to win this game. And I was like, ooh. And she made each move with curiosity and deliberation and intention. And it was just like, oh, this woman is like planning her attack. And I loved it. And so I told her that. And she's like, what? That's exactly what I was doing in my head. I was like, really? She's like, yes. She's like, I think Romeo and Juliet are playing chess. And he beats her. And he's the first person to beat her. And most of the time, she like gives up and allows people to beat her. But in this one, she's like, no, I'm going to beat you. And then like does it. And she's like, like this and I was like I love that and so like we just kept talking about it in abstract ways and just spent time really building that trust and talking about how sad it is that these kids are so frustrated in their lives and like end up going for each other in a way that's beautiful but also like no no you know it's like it's just so tragic it's so upsetting and so sometimes we were backstage and just sobbing together because we're like why do these kids have to do this you know so like we get to escape and together watch these kids who are so in love and be like huh, this is so sad I'm like we would never and then go back into the characters and just keep telling the story so it was a very unique out-of-body experience and I'm very grateful for her yeah well if you have anything that you've not been asked about at the student Q&A's the post-show questionnaires any question you want to answer that has not been asked Ooh. give me answers I don't know. Those questions have been fun. People have asked if me and Isabella actually married. We're like, no. And then one person was like, why do all the shirtless hot men die? Now, that, that's funny. Why? That is so funny. So the questions we've gotten with that, we've gotten, why do all the shirtless men die? Uh, we've asked about like, what is it like working with you and the deaf people? I don't know. We've talked about a lot about the show and what's in it. So I don't wish I had something more. No, I don't. We now go to October 18th, 1967, for the most important political protest of the 60s. Stu Levitan has the story of the historic events that happened 56 years ago today on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, October 18, 1967, The Battle of Dow. The Dow Chemical Company made the incendiary gel Napalm B for use in Vietnam, so it had been a target of the Students for a Democratic Society ever since the Michigan SDS launched a protest against the Michigan-based company in August 1966. In February 1967, the protest came to Madison a two-day action against Dow recruiting that led to the first mass arrests on campus and a tense occupation of administrative offices, with university leadership still inside. Now, as the new school year got underway, Dow was coming back for more recruiting at the Commerce Building. So a broad coalition called the Ad Hoc Committee to Protest Dow Chemical planned a two-part protest. It's part of a national anti-Dow effort leading up to that Saturday's march on the Pentagon. On Tuesday, October 17th, there's to be a rally and picket, but no obstruction. 
But on Wednesday the 18th, protesters are going to break university rules and physically block other students from interviewing with the company. We must move from protest to resistance, their leaflet declares. We must stop what we oppose. They know they're going to get arrested, maybe even face campus discipline. But nobody expects violence. Tuesday goes according to plan. That night, an endorsement of the Wednesday action by the guerrilla theater group San Francisco Mime Troupe, which by coincidence had been booked into the Union Theater by the radical poetry journal Quixote. True to form, the group leads the occupation procession up Bascom Hill the next morning with instruments and spectacle. By 11 o'clock, more than 200 active obstructors and about as many supporters as observers fill the first-floor hallway in commerce. The crowd chants and sings, noise bouncing off the tile and glass, a cacophony of protest. A young woman tries to get through to an interview. Protesters physically stop her. Others also try, also without success. Campus police try to arrest three protesters, but when the crowd intervenes and blocks their way, UW Police Chief Ralph Hansen has his man stand down and step away. On the plaza, pickets and speeches attract a crowd of more than a thousand. Veteran civil rights and peace activist Vicky Gabriner snakes through the crowd in white face and leggings. In sarcastic tribute to the Regent's idealistic statement of academic freedom from 1894, she bears a sign proclaiming herself, quote, Miss Sifting and Winnowing. Campus top cop Hansen fails in several attempts to clear the building. Finally, he asks Chancellor William Sewell for permission to call for city police. Only two months in office, Sewell is the day's tragic figure. A noted sociologist, he was personally against the war, and as a faculty member earlier that year, had voted against allowing Dow onto campus. But in his new post, he feels obliged to enforce the rule against obstruction, which the faculty had just reaffirmed. He tells Hansen to make the call. About 25 policemen with protective helmets and riot sticks respond. Most are Madison natives from the east side, and many simmer with class and political resentment against the privileged and pampered college students. Then everything goes wrong. The riot squad is restless, untrained, with a confused mission and a command structure that breaks down almost immediately. Their initial foray into the foyer at about 1.30 p.m. is repulsed. It's unclear whether the crowd's surge that pushes the police out is intentional or an involuntary reflex. The city police regroup and charge back in. But Hansen, who is supposed to be in charge, has been pushed out of the building and is no longer there to direct or restrain them. Outnumbered by about ten to one, police flail away with their two-foot wooden nightsticks, which rise and fall with frightening frequency. The thwack of wood on skulls sounds like a bouncing basketball or a watermelon hit by a baseball bat. Some students fight back, kicking and spitting. Fear and panic and pain turn to hysteria as chaos engulfs the corridor. A dreadful realization spreads. Police are not arresting students. They're beating them and throwing them out into the commerce courtyard. Among those sent to the emergency room, history grad student Paul Soglin. Police clear the building in 13 minutes, but have not won the day. 
On the plaza in Hill, students are surging, scuffling, crying, Sieg Heil! The growing crowd grows more and more combative. Bricks and bottles fly, and several hit their mark. Into the maelstrom, the 115 class gets out, packing the hill with another mass of students not initially involved, but about to become so, as Madison Police Chief Wilbur Emery calls for the tear gas. It's an historic decision, the first time police used tear gas to quell an anti-war disturbance on a college campus anywhere. It's also a bad call. The wind whips the gas every which way, striking and radicalizing many unintended targets. Sewell watches it all from his Bascom Hall office, aghast, traumatized. He knows what the debacle is doing to his reputation and the university's. Reinforcements arrive, and police finally take control. By 4.30, it's all over. 48 students and six non-students are treated at the emergency room, mainly for scalp lacerations. 18 policemen suffer injuries ranging from black eyes and broken bones to serious facial fractures and a permanently damaged larynx. Police are embarrassed at the beating they've taken, and Chief Emery resolves to respond more forcefully next time. Still, officers take pride in what they've been through, they call the cops who stormed commerce the Dirty Thirty, and some even wear uniform patches with that moniker. The university suspends 13 pending further proceedings. Ten are charged with disorderly conduct. After an agonizing four-hour debate, the faculty defeat a motion to condemn police brutality and instead adopt a motion endorsing Sewell's action. Students are outraged, feeling betrayed. 3,000 meet on Library Mall that night and form the Committee on Student Rights, which Soglin chairs. They hold a short student strike and a mournful march to the Capitol on Saturday, where a special Senate committee would soon start an investigation. Everyone takes their own lesson from Dow. Radicalized students now see the university as protecting the military. Protest leaders Bob Cohen and Evan Stark see their campus careers end. University administrators see a need for a new, harder line. The state's most powerful politicians, and many of its people, see the university as out of control. The police and the students see each other as threats. The summer of love is over. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday evenings. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Gigi Royko Maurer. We had help from the Wisconsin News Connection's Roz Brown. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan and welcome to our newest contributor, Riley Cutright. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, John K. Wilson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next, it's Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.